the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. While the people pressed upon Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had ceased speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great shoal of fish, and as their nets were breaking, they beckoned to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him, at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. Henceforth you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So as we reflect on today's scripture readings, I'm just going to single out one line from our gospel story. St. Luke tells us at the end of the passage with an alarming, almost unimpressed plainness, that the disciples, after having talked with Jesus, quote, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. There's no psychological explanation of this. There's no depiction of inner struggle, of weighing up the options. They just get up and leave. In fact, it appears to Luke as if it's almost self-evident. Like for these young men, it was the most natural thing in the world to do. To us, what I suspect appears as a somewhat heroic deed of devotion is depicted by St. Luke as just par for the course, such that when we, when we read that line, they left everything and followed him, our response is to be, well, of course they did. What appears from the outside to be a foolish, if not even impious and irresponsible recklessness is for those on the inside 
for those who have come to recognize the full weight of Christ's glory, the only sensible thing to do. As Simon Peter would later say, when Christ asked the twelve if they were going to leave him too, he says, To whom would we go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. When the call of Christ is heard, when it's heard for what it is, not as an invitation to a new lifestyle that you're invited to adopt, not as a new philosophy to better yourself and find contentment, not as a set of practices to get your life in order and regain control, but as the voice of God, as the voice of your maker, of the one who has given you everything that you can lay claim to, even your body, even your very self, the one who is responsible for there being anything at all, the one who loves this world even more than we do, who will not see his world go to ruin, a ruin that we all too willingly have ushered in. When the call of Christ is heard not as one voice among many, but the voice that is the source and judge of all other voices, there cannot fail to be a moment of rupture, a moment of breakage, of confrontation. They left everything. Peter seems to have seen this coming because he says, Away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Like Isaiah in the temple, he cries out, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. To encounter God's unmitigated, consuming glory is to come to the end of oneself. It triggers an awareness of our weakness, of our sinfulness. The scriptures can present it as inducing almost a holy madness, such that people call the rocks to fall on themselves to hide from God's blinding, penetrating presence. We cannot bear in ourselves the full force of God's appearing among us. We want to hide. As the Gospel of John puts it, everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Yet God will not let us hide ourselves away. He seeks us out. He ignores the polite boundaries that we've set up, where God gets heaven and we get to go about our way on earth, and if we want anything to do with him, we can choose. We can choose to be religious people and do religious things. But unfortunately, for those of us who would like to keep God at arm's length so that we can go about with our respectable business, God won't leave us alone. We thought we could keep God in a realm of quiet prayer and contemplation, in the safe space of religious practice, and then he showed up in flesh and blood with such concrete presence that you could point to him, you could grab hold of him, you could beat him, you could crucify him. There was no place left for us to go to. Where can I flee from your presence, asked the psalmist. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. To put it simply, the incarnation of God is a frontal assault on human autonomy. He won't let us keep to ourselves. God has placed his standard in public, open for all to see. St. Paul said this, Having overlooked the time of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This was a public act for all the world. 
Now, none of us are disciples in exactly the same way that Simon Peter and the sons of Zebedee were. Yet the call of Christ still goes out. And still there are those who will leave everything and follow him. He still meets us in flesh and blood, but in now in the days of his ascension and after the gift of his poured out spirit at Pentecost, it's in the flesh of his church and in the holy sacraments. There is, of course, still something offensive about the fact that human beings can bear the words of God. Indeed, something upsetting about how plain it can all seem. The ministry of the church is the summons of God. Is that really what's going on? But the same spirit that lighted upon Christ fills his church now and confronts men and women with the same force that met Simon at the lake of Gennesaret. It's the spirit that speaks through the writings of the apostles and prophets that we've heard read today. And it's the same spirit who unites us with the risen Lord in Holy Communion. This means that we too have nowhere to hide. God has gathered us here, perhaps some of us against our will. Maybe we're expecting the snow to keep us home. But he confronts us with the call to follow Christ, wherever that may lead us. Now, of course, many of us have heard this call. We've been following Christ. But as those, who've had, as those who have, we will know this does not mean that we never drift or wander or follow our own course. The call is one that Christ, in his grace, renews day after day, beckoning us again and again. Now, in some ways, we might envy the 12 disciples. It seems they might have had it easier. In following Christ, they actually won some physical distance to their past. Following Christ for us is not just one course of life that we take as opposed to another, such as being an accountant or a nurse, etc. We don't actually have to stop being fishermen in order to follow Christ. It's what we do as we do all those other things. So I want to give the next few minutes then just to offering some of my thoughts on what it would mean for those of us here to still follow the example of Simon and James and John in leaving everything and following him. Hope to avoid any sentimental radicalism, just so that we can gain some clarity about what this might actually entail. Because I do take it that this gospel story must in some way be paradigmatic for all of us who follow Christ. It has to do with us. So first then, what does it mean for those of us here to leave everything? Unlike with the twelve, most likely it does not mean quitting your job, leaving your family, and wandering Galilee. However, what it does mean is this. All those things that give structure and purpose to your life, all those things that you cherish and fix your hopes on, all those things that you take for granted and fill up your day with, the habits and routines, these all get called into question. In the face of the absolute summons of Christ, they lose their unquestioned authority and hold upon you. They are brought under the judgment of Christ. He gets to consider them. Now this does not mean that Jesus will not give these things back to you, that he will not send you to serve him in the midst of these things. But when he does so, your relationship to these things will be, and it must be, different. Your way in the world is now that of, to quote Hebrews, strangers and exiles. Or as Augustine would say, it's the way of pilgrims. 
To leave everything is to become a pilgrim. To be a pilgrim in the world is not to devalue the created world or the communities and everyday purposes that God has given us. But it is to value those things precisely as the sort of things that they are, which means temporal things, as things that will pass away. They are to be loved, but not with the illusion that they can satisfy us ultimately. They are signs of God's love for us, and they are comforts, but they are not God. They're given to direct us to God, and they do that when we recognize them as meant to fan our love for him. To leave the world, then, paradoxically, is to come to see the world as it is, as the site of our pilgrimage and return back to God. The disciples, of course, don't just leave. They also follow. So second, what does it mean for us to follow Christ? I suspect that this is a little bit more intuitive for most of us. But, first things first, the person who follows is not in control. To be a disciple is to give up self-direction and to be led and directed by another. To follow is to give up your own will and way and to make Christ's will and way your own. Now, I get it. We're modern people, so we don't like this. Immanuel Kant, who's the great German philosopher, summarized something that more than shaping the way we think, actually just embodies the way that we think. He thought that human dignity was wrapped up in the fact that we give the law to ourselves. We are self-legislators. We decide the course of things as they ought to be. We get to be our own masters. Now to this, the disciple of Christ will say with St. Paul, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Of course, to make Christ's will and ways our own means we must know it. So that means we must dwell upon Christ's words, as they're given to us in the scriptures. And we must take up his prayers, as they're given to us in the Psalms. But even more, it means an being animated by his very spirit. The way of Christ is good. He can even tell us that it's an easy way. But it's not without pain and trial and sorrow. Without his grace and his power, we will not endure. Now this, this grace is not something we can possess for ourselves, but it's only something we can receive anew, day after day. Which means that it's heart. Following Christ means unceasing dependence upon him. Now one of the difficulties we get is, unlike the first disciples, we know from the start where Christ's way leads to. It leads to a cross. They didn't seem to catch on to this, which made it maybe a little easier for them to follow him at the beginning. So without his encouragement and comfort, we will flee this. But he has given us comfort. St. Augustine saw the gathered church as a kind of way station for a pilgrim people. As he memorably put it, he said, we come to be refreshed by Christ so that we can hear letters from home, so that they can give us encouragement to press on and to keep going. That's the key thing for a pilgrim is to keep going. In his great mercy, God has not left us alone. He's given us one another. So we need not hesitate to spur one another along and to follow our Lord 
wherever he may lead us. First Timothy tells us, for if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. To quote the great motto of the Moravian church, our lamb has conquered, so let us follow him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.